Hebrews chapter 6. It's been two weeks since I last preached here on a Sunday morning. I want to thank those who uh, preached both Sunday morning and Sunday night last week. I uh, heard great things about your study in the Gospel of John in the morning. Remember two weeks ago on a Sunday morning I was going through a severe warning passage. It's quite a difficult passage and I heard from many of you after that uh, sermon. Uh, basically, I think the sermon wore me out so much, I just needed an entire week off to recover. I had headaches for a week after that. and uh, Just a, a really difficult warning, strong warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Well, we've been working our way through the third major section of the book of Hebrews, the third major warning passage in the book. The author knows that some of his readers were sluggish, uninterested in learning more about the priestly nature of Jesus Christ. So what he does in chapters 5 and 6 is he challenges them. He challenges them to press on, to leave the elementary teaching they received when they were first converted, to move on to greater and deeper spiritual maturity. So we come to the final part of uh, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, verses 13 through 20. The author changes his tone a bit. He goes from strong warning to encouragement. And here the author is feeling confident about his readers, about his hearers. Now his ultimate confidence will not rest in them. His confidence is outside of themselves. His confidence is not in them, but in God. So in this passage that we're going to study today, the, the author of Hebrews will speak in glowing terms about the, the hope that these readers have and that we have. And his goal is to encourage us to lay hold of our great Christian hope in Jesus Christ. Have you ever tried to help someone before? Maybe someone trying to get out of trouble. And so you're really burdened for the person. And you think that the solution to their problems is obvious. It's so obvious, you wish you could just kind of wrap it up and give it to them. You just want them to take it. Have you ever been there before, trying to help someone? There's a great video that illustrates how this is sometimes true in marriage. It's entitled, It's Not About the Nail. I'm not going to play the video, but have you, ever, have you ever seen this before? Okay, some of you have seen this before. I'll tell you what happens. And by the way, if you haven't ever seen it before, you need to go and, after the service. You need to hit YouTube and you just need to type in, it's not about the nail. Okay, uh, here the husband desperately wants to help his wife. And he knows what her real problem is. She has a nail in her forehead. But she doesn't want his help. She wants him just to listen about the pain that she is experiencing. And so the husband just has this obvious grasp of what is truly going on. As we come to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews knows exactly what his readers need. And it's ironically what every single person, every individual here today needs as well. 
It's obvious to the author and as he looks at them. And so he emphasizes the one thing they need in this text. And of course, just to make this even more profound for us today, when the author of Hebrews emphasizes that his readers need one thing, that's another way of God himself emphasizing to us what we need. For there's a human author, there's a divine author that stands behind it all. And so God has words for us today about what we truly need. And if you listen today, you follow through this text and you pay close attention, I am sure that you will leave here today encouraged by what God has for you to do. This passage starts in, this passage occurs in two parts, and in both parts, the subject is God. God is in both halves of this passage. So Hebrews 6, 13 through 15 is one half, and verses 16 through 20 is the other. In these passages, God makes promises and he takes oaths. He blesses and multiplies. In this passage, we're going to see that God has a purpose that is unchangeable, and we'll see that he provides for us a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Okay? So as you look at the two parts of this passage, you see the same subject in both halves. This passage is about God the Father, about the Godhead. But I think to better understand the passage, you need to also know that there are two objects whom God addresses in the passage. And that's the key to this text. For this text is about God and Abraham in verses 13 through 15. And then it's about God and you in verses 16 through 20. So it's a very simple outline this morning. We, we look first at verses 13 through 15 about what this text says about Abraham and God. And I think that the author answers two questions about Abraham. First, verses 13 and 14, who Abraham was. Let's read this whole section. <clears throat> Verse 13. <clears throat> For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. <clears throat> so first we look at Abraham here, and we, we need to follow what the text says about Abraham, because eventually the author is going to turn it and show us exactly why this is important for us. Verses 13 and 14, we learn a few things about Abraham, and throughout the Old Testament, we can learn some things about him too. Abraham was a very important Old Testament figure. His life is narrated in the book of Genesis. There are 14 chapters in the book of Genesis that talk about Abraham, uh, Genesis 12 through 25. He was one of the forefathers of the Jewish nation, and he was a very bright light of faithfulness and of confidence or trust in God being one of the first descendants of the world after Noah and the flood. So it's this profound example of confidence or faithfulness in God. As a matter of fact, he was so such a good example that the apostle Paul continually or uh, regularly refers to Abraham as an example of one who had faith and one who, you remember the passage in Romans, it says, and one who against hope believed in hope. Remember, Abraham could not have children, his wife could not have 
and Sarah could not have children, but God told him that he would have a child, and so Abraham held out. He believed at most times that God could do this. And so the apostle Paul comes along years later, and he talks about the faithfulness and the faith of Abraham. So in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 15, we learn that Abraham was not only faithful, but he was the man that God made a promise to and then later gave an oath to. And so we're going to have to look at this a little bit in the Old Testament. So we look at both of these things that God did for Abraham. He, first, he made a promise. As we study the word promise, I think this is one that really transfers very well for us today in our culture. We know what a promise is, okay? A promise involves at least one person agreeing to do something for another person. God made a promise to a human being. He transcended, made a promise to a human being. That one person was Abraham. And this promise, I think the very first promise he makes to him is found in your Old Testament scripture in the book of Genesis. So what I want to do for a moment, I'm going to have you go back to the book of Genesis Go to Genesis 12, and you're going to want to go there because we're going to look at three passages in the book of Genesis. Okay, so I want you to see the promise that God made to Abraham. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is a, a very significant Old Testament text. Some people will call this text the Abrahamic Covenant. Where in this text we'll see God making a promise to a man by the name of Abram, who later his name is changed to Abraham. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in this passage we just read, God's promise includes at least three significant blessings. I've underlined them in my Bible. He first promises in verse 1 a land for Abraham. He was a traveler. He was a traveler, a nomad. He, he needed a land. So first he promises a land, verse 1. Then verse 2, he promises a great nation. A multitude of people will come from Sarah's womb. A great nation will come from his offspring. And then number 3, the third blessing of the Abrahamic covenant is verse 3, where it says, "In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there was a promise of a land a great nation, and a universal blessing on the families of the earth. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, there are different ways you can reinforce a promise that you give to someone. You can restate it and clarify what you meant when you first said it. And God does that for Abraham a little bit later on. Go over to Genesis 15 in your Bibles. Genesis 15 where God reiterates and clarifies the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Look at Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, a servant. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Okay, and so there are different ways you can encourage someone that you've given a promise to before. Maybe they forgot about the promise. Maybe they don't think there's any way it's ever going to come true. So you can restate it, right, and clarify. So God says to Abram, count the stars, as many stars as there are in the world. That's how many, that's how many descendants you're going to have through your son who's not even born yet. Of course, another way that God encouraged Abraham concerning this promise in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 is later on he decides to take an oath to guarantee it in Genesis chapter 22. So why don't you turn over there for a second. Genesis 22. As you do so, let me talk to you about an oath. An oath is, a, is, is something even more obligatory to human beings than a promise. Of course, both are obligatory to God. An oath is a solemn, legal, binding declaration that someone will perform something for another person. A binding, legal declaration. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us exactly what oath God took. You don't need to turn back there, but in the text, he, he quotes it. He says, saying, quote, I will bless you and multiply you. And so when the author of Hebrews is talking about the oath that God took to Abraham, he quotes Genesis 22, the text I'm going to read for you. Look down in your Bibles at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his own son. You remember this? He's on Mount Moriah. His son Isaac has been born since Genesis 15. But now God is asking Abram, demanding from Abram to sacrifice his own son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, ESV translates, the Lord will provide, other translations, Jehovah-Jireh. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. That's the oath that God takes. 
Multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is dealing with the most significant, serious threat to the promise of God sacrifice and death of his son, his heir. Come to Genesis chapter 2. Here Abraham faces a crisis in his faith. No doubt Abraham had strong yearnings for his son Isaac. But he also had a very strong desire to obey Almighty God. And so Abraham moves forward to sacrifice his son. God stops him and then takes an oath to bless and multiply Abraham and his offspring because of it. So go back in your Bibles to Hebrews. So that is who Abraham is or was. He was the obedient, faithful believer to whom God made promises and took an oath. But our attention to Abraham is not quite done. If you look back in your Bible again at Hebrews 6, you see verse 15, and it moves from who he was to what he did. What did Abraham do? So look in your Bible, Hebrews 6, again, verse 15. It says, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Okay, this verse emphasizes two things that Abraham did. First, we learn of Abraham's response text uses one word in the original that is translated by the ESV. It's translated, havingly, have, uh, having patiently waited. It comes from one word in the original, which is a, a little bit challenging to understand. I think the ESV's translation is helpful, having patiently waited. But let me, let me describe to you what this could look like. Okay? The way I saw this one word used in other places is that it's translated patient waiting. In the gospel, for instance, you might remember the story. Jesus tells a story of a servant who owed his master money. And the, he was afraid the master was going to come down upon him and take his life. And so the servant asked him to be patient, using this word, patiently waiting for him to suffer along with him so that the servant could repay his debt. So you have time to do that. This one word is also used in the book of James. I found it three times in two verses. In the book of James, the way this word is used is it's used of the need for believers to have patience regarding the return of the Lord. In that text, we learn that it's not just like passive bearing along, you know, this patiently way. It's not just like this passive thing where you just don't do anything. But there we learn as well that it involves an active eager waiting for something because if i want to know what the words having patiently waited mean i could go to those other texts or i could just think about the life of abraham himself abraham receives a promise from god in genesis 12 you know how old abraham was when he received that promise he was approximately 75 years of age no the wonder he was afraid whether he would have children or not He's about 75 years of age. And then Isaac is finally born. 
Isaac is born nine chapters later in Genesis 21. You know about how old Abraham is at that time? He's approximately 100 years old. So God made a promise when Abraham's 75, and the fulfillment of the promise begins 25 years later. So if we're going to consider what Abraham did, the author makes a big deal out of this. What Abraham did is he patiently, eagerly waited for God to fulfill the promise. Then we learn in verse 15 as well, there's one other thing that Abraham did. We see what he experienced. The text says, having patiently waited, he received the promise. I think this speaks of the fulfillment that Abraham received when his wife gave birth to his son Isaac, the one from whom all the blessings would eventually be realized. So men and women, this is what Abraham did. He patiently waited and he received the promise. Now, in this text, what the author does next is he turns it. And you might be thinking at this point, man, this preacher is pretty fired up about Abraham. Like, I've heard a lot of things about Abraham. I don't know why I should be so concerned about Abraham. That's because the author of Hebrews turns it to us. And in a parallel way, in a very parallel way, he talks about then, because of the way God treated Abraham, how that impacts us. Okay, so these two questions are answered for us as well. The first one is, uh, we're going to answer the question, who you are if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Look in your Bibles at verse 16. It says, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to Abraham, no, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of its purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. See, men and women, this text is not just about Abraham, it's about us. And that's one of the reasons this is of fundamental importance. Well, you must listen. Here the author starts by making an important point about God in verse 16. When God takes an oath, he is not able to guarantee it the way, other, the way human beings do, by subordinating himself under some like greater authority or power. No one is greater than God, so he doesn't swear by legal authority. He swears by himself on his own authority. And this, the text says, acts as a final confirmation of the issue. Culturally speaking, in Abraham's day, oaths sealed the deal. It might be like a legal contract today. So, if you're going to buy a home, you normally just don't take someone's word for it. What's the price? Okay, you're going to give it. Okay, let's just shake hands. We don't do that as much anymore today. What we do is we get a contract written up. And why do we get a contract written up? So that if that guy doesn't come through and he doesn't pay me what he's agreed to pay me for this house or for this car, right, the authorities are going to come down on him. Okay, so 
oaths ended every dispute back in the Old Testament era. Ended every dispute. So this is what God did. Now, verse 17 tells us more of why God did this. He not only did this for Abraham, he did this for other people. He wanted to make something obvious to a group of people that he here calls the heirs of his promise. The heirs of his promise. God wanted to make something abundantly clear to these people. Now, who are the heirs of Abraham's promise? Well, that's kind of a loaded question, right? Some people think that it's, it's the descendants of Abraham physically, that it would be Israel, perhaps, uh, of the Old Testament era. And I think that they could be included, perhaps, some of them. But I think what he's describing here is he's addressing these new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. Is He's addressing the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Those who will have faith in God, like Abraham. They are the heirs of the promise. I have another text I would refer you to here. We, we don't have time to turn there like I originally thought, but I, I just would have you write down Galatians 3, 8 and 9, and I'll read it to you. Here Paul is talking about the blessings promised to Abraham in Galatians 3, 8 and 9, and he says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, listen to what Paul says, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If I'm answering the question, who are the heirs of the promise that the author of Hebrews is describing here, I think that it might include Abraham. I think it might include the Jewish people, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But I think especially it's those who believe in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus are the benefactors of the Abrahamic covenant. More specifically, then, the text tells us that God did all of this to show more clearly to us, that's how I take it, us, the unchangeable character of his purpose. So God made promises to Abraham, and then later on he came back and he took an oath to Abraham so that that would demonstrate something to the heirs of the promise. Something very important, and that is that God's nature and will are unalterable and unchangeable. He's an immutable being, never changing, and he wanted you to see that. That's why he made promises and an oath to Abraham. So we are, we are heirs, and God's oath was intended to show us God's immutable character. But then in verse 18, he describes us in another way. So who are we? Verses 16 through 18, we are the heirs of the promise of Abraham. Who else are we? Verse 18, he describes us this way. We are those who have fled for refuge. Or to make this very simple, I think first he, he describes us as heirs and then refugees. We are those who were the ones who fled to God for refuge. When he uses this description, it's a mysterious description that's difficult to explain in our context here. They were refugees. They were like those who fled for safety. Like those seeking shelter or asylum from something, from some danger. 
what sort of affliction would his original readers, readers have been facing? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 32 for a second. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. We'll just stop there. The author of Hebrews is addressing his original readers. He calls them refugees because these people had been exposed to all different levels of physical suffering. They were like those fleeing for their lives. But there's a sense in which this word, uh, those who have fled to God for refuge, also describes us spiritually. Spiritually, it's true of them physically, but I think it's true of any person who senses his great need of something or someone to help them. So, in a sense, again, I think he's describing us. We are also those who are completely vulnerable, those needing help by something or someone outside of themselves. You see, human beings must lay hold of something outside of themselves to transform the aching awareness of their own instability and sinfulness into joyful confidence that you'll be accepted by God. This passage says that God's faithfulness is confirmed to us. We are the ones as well who have fled to him for refuge. And it was to demonstrate to us that by two immutable things, which I take as his promise and his oath, that he will never change his word. So God's purpose in giving a promise and oath to Abraham extends to us today, the heirs of his promise, and the refugees who need something outside of themselves to rescue themselves. Men and women, that is who we are if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and this is what God has done for us. The author intends for all of this in the text, if you're reading closely in the text, for all of this, the oath and promises that he gave to Abraham to show something to us, and he intends it specifically to give you strong encouragement today. He wants it to provide strong encouragement today if you're finding this text. And the strong encouragement is specified right after this with verses 18 through 20, keeping it parallel again. It's not just like a general strong encouragement. I don't want you to just you know, feel warm and fuzzy here today but it's especially that we would do something. So look in your Bibles at the end of verse 18 through verse 20. It says, middle of verse 18, to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we close here today, I won't say much about Melchizedek because that's all of what chapter 7 is going to be about. 
But here Abraham, uh, in the first part of the passage, he had received a promise and oath from God, and he was to respond in a certain way, or he responded in a certain way. He, the text says he patiently waited for. And then we learn we are heirs and refugees, and we must do something as well. And what we must do, what we are strongly encouraged by God and his oath and his promise to do is found in the last part of verse uh, 18 there. We must hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, what type of hope this is, I think, is the subject of verses 19 and 20. And uh, just for sake of time, I'll just say it in two ways. I think that the, the author describes this hope in two ways. First, it's a hope that is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. I love that. I just love even reading it and saying it. He uses a metaphor, right? A metaphor of an anchor. An anchor is used here to, to give the sense of stability. An anchor is unseen underneath the ocean floor or on the ocean floor, yet its influence impacts the ship in a great way. The anchor, he says in this text, is firm because it, our anchor won't bend or twist or break under any storm. Right? It's firm. And it is secure because it won't drag or slip in any sort of storm in life. So our hope is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. That's the first metaphor. Now I love this passage because what the author of Hebrews does next, what God does next, is he mixes metaphors. Okay, so you got a metaphor of an anchor, and then you have a metaphor of a room. And you go through this passage, you're trying to figure it out. So what we learn is, secondly, that our hope is a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Okay, so our hope is an anchor for our soul, steadfast and sure, but our hope is also uh, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. So what we learn here is our anchor is not set in water anywhere. It's set at our ultimate point of destination. You're mixing these two metaphors. It's, it's kind of hard. What, what room is he talking about here? Well, one of the things that helped me this week as I, as I studied this was to see that this little phrase, the inner place behind the curtain, is found in only one other place in your entire Bible. Those words, the inner place behind the curtain, are found only in one other place in the entire Scripture, and that is in the book of Leviticus. You could write down the text, Leviticus 16.2. I'll read it to you. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place, listen, inside the curtain. And while the ESV translates it a little differently, this is the same exact phrase. The holy place inside the curtain, before the mercy seat that's on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Here in this Old Testament text, the word curtain is used to describe the inner veil of the tabernacle. So originally in this Old Testament context, the author uh, of, of Leviticus, or uh, in this text, we learn that the curtain is the one near the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Ultimately, though, what the author of Hebrews does is he uses the curtain, a, the word curtain, as a metaphor for the veil that separates us not from the Holy of Holies, but from heaven. Okay, so you get this, right? So if you've known this for a while, but it's good to just kind of think through this. 
Okay, so ultimately the author of Hebrews is talking here about heaven. Our hope is in heaven, okay? And the reason our hope is in heaven, according to the author of Hebrews, is because that is where Jesus went as a forerunner on our behalf. The word forerunners is only used here in the New Testament. In other places outside of the New Testament, it's used of a runner who is breaking away from the others in a race to win it. The word forerunner could be translated perhaps as a pioneer or a trailblazer. So, our anchor is not cast in a sea. It is cast in the very presence of God in heaven. See, the author is encouraging us to do something. He's encouraging you to lay hold of something that is in the most important part of the universe, in the throne room of God. Set your affection and hope on Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He's telling us, lay hold of. He's telling us readers, lay hold of the hope that's set before you, that gets behind the veil, that goes the whole way to heaven. Jesus. So as we close, I ask you, have you done that? Have you grabbed hold of the anchor that is sure and steadfast in the person of Jesus Christ? If you have, then what I tell you to do from this text as we close is what you need to do, you need to worship. You just need to praise the Lord because you have something that gives you stability in all of your weakness and sinfulness. You should be rejected by God, accursed and placed in hell, but God has given you an anchor that's, it's like you're, it's like you're hooked to Jesus who's in heaven. And as your life goes along, you know, as the chain of your life shortens, you're getting closer and closer to your hope that will take you to heaven, Jesus himself. And so if if this is true of you today, if you've accepted Jesus, I think you should respond by worshiping him. I love the words of the old hymn. I think they're quite appropriate here. The hymnist for the song, On Christ the Solid Rock. Ever read the second verse of that song? He says, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you're here today and you believed in Jesus Christ and you have that anchor for your soul, you should worship the Lord today and give him praise and glory. Now, if you have not laid hold of him, what should you do? Some of you have been coming to this church for years, years, to to appease your spouse. He or she nags on you, nags on you, nags on you. Won't you come to church? Won't you hear the Bible? We just go verse by verse through Scripture. Why don't you do that? And so you've come here and you're, you're doing your time. You might even do it with a smile on your face, but as you hear other people worshiping the Lord, you have never, you have never believed the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are lost in your sin, and without this, you have no anchor for your soul. 
Some of you young people are here because your parents dragged you to church. May not have been literal today, but internally you have no desire to be here. And that may be because you have a filthy lifestyle. Your language is raunchy. We're to put your text on the screen behind us, and we all heard that. We would see what's in your heart. Your thoughts are immoral. It can be demonstrated by what you search for and what you scan on your social media. We put those videos, those thoughts up here. We would see that your heart lusts. It craves for its own way. And what is obvious today is what you need. What you need more than anything else. It's like you have a nail in your forehead. It's that clear. You need to flee to God for refuge. You need an anchor for your soul. You need Jesus, the forerunner, to be forgiven for your sin. So that your future is not one of tormented hell, but one where you are embraced by a loving God. Some of you are here today and perhaps you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior before because you have this view of God where you think of Him as a grim, unloving, judgmental God. But what the author of Hebrews wants you to see today is not that view of God. He wants you to see this. He wants you to see a God who loves you. He loves you. And He cares for you. And so I just ask you, if you've been coming for a while, if you're a young person, older person, I don't care what age you are, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, why wouldn't you attach yourself to someone who can be an anchor for your soul? Yesterday, I had the privilege of preaching the gospel at a funeral for Lindsay Copeland. Lindsay's a 73-year-old man. As I preached that gospel and I heard testimony of his life, one of the sweetest things said about Lindsay Copeland was by his daughter Kelly, who saw him near the end, and she said this. She said, his faith was firm to the end. See, Lindsay Copeland had a steadfast anchor for the soul. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, there's no anchor for you apart from him.